Welcome to Two Guys in a Bible. My name is Dylan Keniston. It is my privilege to be here this morning with my uh, co-host in uh, in biblical armor, Eric Leupold. How are you doing this morning, brother? I'm doing, doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thanks. So this is Two Guys in a Bible, a weekly conversation on theology, theology, the, theology, 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 theology <laughs> culture, and God's word. Um, this is episode 12. I think this morning we are discussing just war. Uh, yeah. Is if war, I mean, just the concept what of is war. good for? Yeah, that, absolutely, absolutely nothing. I, I mean, that, is that, is that, that song, song right? No, I, I hate mean, that song. Well, we're going to dive in. <laughs> That's right. We're going to talk about that song. Yeah. So like just why war, that song is wrong. Yeah. Like, is that, is that an oxymoron? Is, is like war in ever, in ever, in any instance ever, you know, legit? Is this something that, that Christians can do? Or is it something the state does that Christians just acknowledge the state, you know, gets the sword, stands against the evildoer, but Christians can't participate in mm. along kind of like Anabaptist lines where, you know, maybe maybe most consistently can't even participate in the courts or participate in any kind of governmental function besides being, you know, a secretary. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's what we're talking about this morning. Yeah, there's a lot of topics to cover. A lot to cover. And we're, um, uh, you know, this is part of that series, I guess, if you will, on, on, like, we talked about the government a a little bit ago, a couple weeks ago, and uh, and law, okay? So I guess this is just kind of going along with the idea, okay, well, you know, what do governments do? And and this is one of those things, you know, war is, is out there. It's a reality. So the question is, how do we approach the topic? And, and again, I think we might have to have another episode on, on, on perhaps, you know, pacifism or, or, or maybe the Anabaptist position of, well, I'm not going to get involved in any kind of conflict or government or police force or anything like that. That's definitely a conversation that right. we'll have to have as well. Right. And so in, in all seriousness, I, I mean, we like to joke around and, you know, and stuff like that, but we, 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 we understand the, the weightiness and, and the magnitude of this topic. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not, it is not a laughing matter. I mean, at the end of yeah. the day, war is a very tragic and, and very serious thing that uh, just wreaks havoc even when it is executed in the heritage of Christian just war theory. Yeah, um, it affects lives. Big it, time. it affects lives, and it is still only rough justice. Um, so I guess that's that's what we're here to discuss this morning. So, yeah. uh, Eric, w- with with that introduction, um, I mean, let's let's start with the phrase "just war." Yeah. Right. So, is that even a thing? Mm-hmm. Um, what would it even mean or look like for a war to be just? Yeah. Well, um, uh, war, I mean, t- take it one step back a little bit. Uh, what is war, right? And uh, I, I do have to lean on uh, a, a, a man, uh, uh, General Karl von Clausewitz. Okay, now uh, some of our listeners might, might not be familiar with him, um, but he was a military uh, uh, a general and, a, a, if you will, a philosopher back in the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, he wrote a book <laughs> called On War. And essentially, I would consider him, uh, he's like the systematic, he wrote the systematic theology on war, basically. Okay. What is it from the ground up? I have heard of this guy. Yeah, he's, it, I would highly encourage if folks are interested in reading about the concept of war as a, you know, philosophy, as a, you know, just in general, you know, read, pick up his book. It's not, it's not too long, but he fought against Napoleon. Uh, he was on the Prussian side, but uh, but anyways, he he made the point that war is is nothing more than a than a duel, if you will, on a on a very grand scale. So, if you think about it, I mean, uh, a war could take place between two people uh, if we just you know get in a fight with each other, or it could be between two families, you know, like a like a feud, or perhaps two tribes, 
uh, there. And now when we're talking about nations, okay, now we're thinking of the, the concept of war. So basically two nations, two groups fighting each other about something. Um, and can that be done in a, in a just way, right? And I guess the concept of just implies, you know, a, a holy standard, a good standard, God's standard. And uh, I guess the, the question to be asked is, uh, when any fighting is going on, physical com- conflict between two people, two groups, can it be done in a God-honoring way? Are there rules that God has given us or put in place regarding how that is to be done, mm-hmm. right? Um, when can you uh, inflict harm upon somebody else, right? So it, it even almost goes back to the idea, is it ever okay to take human life? Because that's really what uh, a war involves. It involves a massive amount of human life potentially being taken. Um, and, and, and to answer that question, uh, I think there, there is clear evidence in Scripture that, that there, are, there are instances where it, you are required or allowed to take human life. So for instance, um, in Genesis chapter 9, uh, this is one of the first passages that, that we'll go to, uh, in verses 5 and 6, this is after the Noahic, uh, the, the flood and, and the Noahic covenant is, um, is introduced by God. Uh, he, uh, God tells Noah this, he says in verse 5, And for your lifeblood I, sh- I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And that's like the first explicit uh, introduction of, I guess you would say, the death penalty, right? I mean, we know previously that Cain had murdered his brother Abel. He was guilty. He knew it was wrong. And God had punished him in a way by putting the mark on Cain and, and exiling him. Uh, but, uh, but God did not allow people to kill Cain. Okay, he was not allowed to be um, uh, get reven- revenge uh, be brought upon him. Yeah. Uh, those who killed Cain would be punished themselves. But now, uh, God is uh, is implementing a death penalty or allowing for the death penalty to be taken into consideration for those who commit murder. So that's to be done. And certainly, um, I mean that's that's for all of mankind. But but we then see uh, in in Exodus. So now we're talking about the people of Israel specifically. Um, Exodus 22 uh, is is just one example of the concept of, if you would, self-defense or justified uh, 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 killing of a human being. In Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3, here's what the, what the law says. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. So uh, the concept there uh, is that, okay, thief is breaking in and uh, he's struck so that he dies. So the concept here is that, of course, you know, the thief is breaking into your home. It's presumably at night. Usually thieves don't, wouldn't break in during the, during the broad daylight hours. Uh, so it's nighttime. Uh, you don't have, you don't just flip the light switch and all of a sudden you see who it is. Yeah. I mean, you need to light a candle. You need to do something. So it's a struggle in the dark. And if, uh, if you strike him so that he dies, you know, it's self-defense, you as the homeowner, as the person that was being uh, attacked, there's no blood guilt hmm. for, for that. But, and the phrase here used is, if the sun has risen on him. So the idea being that, I mean, it's, you know, it's daylight, you can see the person clearly, or he's already fleeing. 
He's already left the house with your stuff. Uh, you're not authorized to to go chase him down and, and, and kill him and get your stuff back. Um, that, that would incur a blood guilt upon you for doing that. So, so life is precious and God, and God sees the importance of preserving life and having that blood guilt. You can't just get revenge on people whenever you want to, but self-defense is, it seems like is allowed. So, so I bring all this up just to simply point out there are cases where human individuals can take life. And certainly when we, when we take a look at, okay, what's the role of the government? Well, we do have that clear uh, impl- uh, uh, imposition of the death penalty there. So I, maybe that helps answer some of the initial questions there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think so. So as I'm, hearing, as I'm hearing us kind of talk through this, and I'm hearing you kind of explain this, one of the questions that's coming to my mind is this difference between, like, who is authorized to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to take life in this case. So yeah. typically when we think about war, I know that, you know, at least in, in the Christian heritage of just war theory, one of the stipulations of just war in terms of um, how it is executed is that it would be only uh, initiated by the highest governmental authority, mm. right? It's not kind of like a, you know, individualistic yeah. vengeance-seeking initiative. Um, so, I mean, in, what, is, what does that look like? So I mean, here we have kind of an individual uh, in who, you know, whose house has been broken into— and you know is is able to defend himself. Um, so how do we extrapolate that that then to to the state? I mean, what is yeah. what does that extrapolation look like? Yeah. So um, you know, obviously, again, looking at that that law from Exodus, there's that blood guilt, right? So um, at that point, once the thief has fled, once it's once it's over, um, it's really in the hands of the quote unquote government, which would have been the elders. Uh, or the, the nation of Israel, or whatever the case may be. So, yes, the thief needs to be apprehended. He needs to be uh, fined. He, the goods need to be returned. Um, but, uh, but that's out of your hands now as an individual homeowner. So in the case of we're talking about wars between nations, um, yeah, it's certainly in the hands of, of, the United, of, of, a, of a government. So get, let me give an example. Um, when, when 9-11 took place, right, I mean, uh, we were, as a nation, we were attacked, and, uh, and a lot of damage was done, and lives were lost. Um, would, it be, would it be okay for, you know, me as an individual citizen to go declare war on al-Qaeda and to, you know, go over there with my own weapons and try to fight them? Um, I don't think it would have been appropriate for me to do that, and it would have been it wouldn't have been wise either, because I mean I don't have the skills, the equipment, the training, or the or the the resources to be able to do that, even remotely effectively. I would have have gotten I probably would have gotten in the way mm-hmm. of the army rangers or whoever else was being sent to go do that job. I mean I'm a civilian essentially, functioning as a vigilante, and I'm getting in the way of uh, of the real the real forces that are trying to bring. Uh, uh, justice, if you will. And so I think that this goes right into what Paul says explicitly in Romans 13, uh, uh, chapter uh, chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, right? So, so if there's governing authorities over you, you need to be subject to them, and it's their job to administer justice, as Paul says here, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And I'll stop there for a second. I mean, obviously the context here, you know, Paul's talking to Christians. He's telling them to be subject to the governing authorities. And the, and the context here is uh, the government's job is to uh, maintain stability, uh, to punish evil, uh, and basically, you know, protect uh, uh, the, uh, the people who do good. Um, but I think that it would be fair to say that this applies not only internally, so within the confines of that government, but also externally. So if a foreign, if a foreign entity, um, whatever barbarian tribe in, in the Roman Empire decides to come in and pillage and, and steal uh, Roman citizens and hurt them, it would be the job of the Roman government to you know, stop that and to get those people back and to you know, rescue and prevent death and destruction of their own populace, right? So there's an implication there that, yeah, you, the government's job is to maintain order within the country, but also to, to protect against the outside threats. And, that, and, that, and, and that's where the idea of bearing the sword and, and carrying out vengeance, right? Um, I mentioned before that uh, I used to work, I used to, when I served uh, in the active duty Air Force at, at Creech Air Force Base, the, the unit I was part of uh, their motto was dealing vengeance. Hmm. Like that was the, the on the patch that we wore on our shoulder and actually said dealing vengeance. And and I found that to be particularly a- applicable. Hmm. I mean, we were out uh, engaging in warfare against uh, 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 radical Islamic terrorists who were trying to to kill Americans and civilians. And so we were dealing vengeance upon them uh, there. So I guess uh, it's kind of a long, a long answer to a short question there. Uh, um, so, yeah, and to summarize that, I would say the government's job is to wage war. Um, but now the question comes down and comes down to can that be done? Can that be done in a right way? Can it be done well at all? Uh, what And what would that look like? Can it be done by Christians? So, I, like, I'm thinking, mm. you know, one passage that comes to mind for yeah. me, you know, I know this is this kind of thing. And we can do a separate episode on pacifism, I'm sure. But then, yeah. you know, just to put this front and center, because it could be in front and center of some folks, some listeners' minds, you know, Peter strikes the sword of the servant. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. Yeah. If you live by the sword, die, you by, die the by the sword. sword. Right. Um, so, you know, and there's all kinds of texts about, you know, all kind huge biblical themes about peacemaking and forgiveness. And, yeah. you know, I mean, so if you're a Christian, can you even in good conscience participate in a war, even if it's a, you know, I don't know, a, I guess the most, uh, the, the largest scale and, and sticks in most people's minds as a, as a quote unquote good versus evil war mm-hmm. might be World War II. World War II. Right? So we're, probably the clearest example. Probably the clearest example. So where a country is, you know, perpetrating its Holocaust. Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany, right? Yeah. Is, is it, can Christians participate in taking up arms against yeah. uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, I tell you, I mean, it's hard. I mean, in the New Testament, there's nothing explicit that says Christians, you know, should take up the sword when they're asked to, okay? It doesn't say that they—I don't think it explicitly says that they shouldn't. Um, there are some, I guess I could say, indirect passages. So hmm. the, the one uh, that seems to come to mind the most is Luke chapter 3. Now, in this passage, we have John the Baptist is, is proclaiming 
uh, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's baptizing people. He's, he's talking to people and, uh, and, a, and a lot, and a various, um, various groups of people come to him. Right. So in, uh, in chapter three, verses 10, I'll just, I'll just read this section and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he, this is John the Baptist answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Now, um, you know, John the Baptist was not um, uh, a, la- a, a pretty, you know, how do I put it this way? You know, he had no problem calling out sin when there was sin, mm. right? Like he even told King Herod, like, you ought not to have your brother's wife. And he got in trouble for that, right? I mean, John the Baptist lost his head because he criticized Herod for his uh, behavior. So, I mean, John is not the kind of guy to go easy on someone. And it's interesting that when soldiers come to him and they have a repentant heart, and they, at, and they ask him what they should do. He doesn't tell them, stop killing people or, you know, quit your jobs and go, you know, go be a farmer. He simply tells them, don't extort money. Because that would have been what, what, I mean, you're a soldier, right? You have power, you have weapons. You could just go up to someone and say, give me your money or I'm going to run you through, mm. you know. So he's you know, basically saying, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by accusing them and be content with your wages. And soldiers didn't get paid that much. And he's, you know, telling them contentment, like do your job, don't complain and don't abuse your power that you have. And that would be applicable to police officers and certainly to, to military soldiers as well. Because in those days, the Roman soldiers would have acted as both. They would have been the police officer in a way, as well as a, a, a defense against foreign invasion, yeah. if you would. So I, I think that is um, probably the clearest passage. And of course, there are centurions who become who become believers, they're never told to quit their jobs, put down their swords, and stop serving. Uh, there's just never, nothing there about that. So um, while I do later on in another episode want to talk about can a Christian be a pacifist, is that a legitimate option, conscientious obje- objector? Uh, right now, it does. nothing seems to be in Scripture that says you cannot serve um, at the behest of a of the government as far as, you know, wielding the sword. Yeah. Um, there's certainly, it seems like individually you shouldn't be prone to commit vengeance, Yeah. but the government's job is to, is to engage in vengeance, not, not you as an individual. But if you're, if you serve the government, if you're being called upon to rescue your neighbor from death, in the case of Nazi Germany, rescuing these people from extermination, uh, you know, I think that uh, that's kind of like the, you know, uh, what the, the sixth commandment or, the, or is it, it's the fifth, right? Thou shalt not murder, right? Mm-hmm. And I think part of that involves um, how about you protect people who are being murdered? Yeah. If you see someone in the street being murdered, maybe you should come to their aid. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think it ties back to loving neighbor, too. So, yeah. right. So, I mean, is, are, are we really saying that, um, you know, uh, what what does it really mean to to love our neighbors mm. against whom Holocaust is being perpetrated. Yeah. Or, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the defenseless, right? The poor, the widow, and the exactly. orphan. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. When someone is preying upon them, what do you do? What does it mean for a Christian yeah. to love them? What does it mean for mm. a Christian to act charitably towards them, to love neighbor? Um, or are we saying, you know, so long as it's going on over in some other country, it doesn't matter? Mm. Uh, you know, what is the more loving 
response. I mean, I, you know, in the heritage of Aquinas and of Calvin, I think it's safe to say that, you know, as just war theory has been teased out in the Western heritage, and, and in particular in, in, in Christian thought, it has always been insisted that, it, that, that just war be tied back to the commandment to love, Yeah. interestingly enough. I mean, we don't think of war as a, as a loving thing, but that is the insistence, that it be tied back to love and not triumphalism mm-hmm. and just love for those who are being um, have, having violence wrought against them but including love for, for the perpetrator, him or herself, in the mm-hmm. sense that the, 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 the response in a just war context must never, it must always be for limited ends, Yeah. right? And it must, it, so, you know, it's not, and, and it, all, it must always be, the response must be proportional to the initial aggression, Yeah. right? So, you know, somebody goes and, I don't know, um, bombs your, your, your barracks, you don't go and nuke, you know, five of their towns yeah. where you're targeting non-combatants and yep. you're, and it's like, you know, way, way bigger in scale. You don't go nuke their nation, right? Because somebody did. Yeah. It's not proportional. And you're doing it for limited ends. The end, the end goal is to restore a just peace. That's right. Right? The end goal is not to pillage yourself or to, you mm-hmm. know, colonialize or to, to have yourself become the... Uh, the, the, to see yourself become the aggressor, yeah. that must never be the end yeah. for which it's for which it's uh, the war is prosecuted. Otherwise, it ceases to be just. Yeah, I agree. And and there's a couple of documents I want to I want to bring up. But before I do that, I want to give one more one more defense, if you will, of the concept that war can be can be used for good purposes. I mean, we see in the garden, uh, Adam was supposed to defend the the garden from Satan, right? Mm-hmm. And and he didn't do that. So in a way. Adam was supposed to wage spiritual warfare mm-hmm. at the, from the very beginning. Now, because sin is in the world, now there exists physical warfare. Now, of course, as Christians, we still engage in warfare, spiritually speaking. We're kind of, we're doing what Christ commanded us to do, you know, and Christ did what Adam failed to do as far as crushing the, the serpent and kicking him out. Um, but uh, I, I want to, you know, to answer the question, you know, can God's people engage in warfare? And when I talk about when we go back to like uh, the nation of Israel and they're um, taking over the land, I mean that's something we've got to consider. So they are commanded by God to wage war physically against the land of Canaan. Mm-hmm. Now an argument could be made that that was a specific instance, just for them, and that after that was done, uh, uh, you know, war is to be that's the end of war for them, right? They should have peace. They should have you know take care of all the nations uh, that God told them to get rid of, and then they're good. But that's actually not what Scripture says, because if you go to Deuteronomy 20, there's a whole that whole chapter is about uh, warfare, laws concerning warfare. Now it's interesting. Here's a couple of things I want to draw out um, here. Uh, I'll start in verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it, and if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing 
that breathes. So interesting here, there's two there's two categories. God yeah. says, okay, for the cities that are far away, that's not the cities of the land that you're entering. This is the, how you're to wage war against them if that happens. But to the cities that you're taking the land from, there is no peace. There is not to be this, oh, we'll take the, we'll keep the women, we'll keep the wealth, we'll keep all the cattle. No, you're not to do that. And so it's interesting. There's an implication here that, yeah, you might find yourself at war one day against, let's say, the Egyptians. Okay? Uh, they're not part of the land, but maybe you'll fight them. I don't know. Uh, but uh, there's rules for that. Yeah. You know, there's rules for that. So, so that is the foundation, if you will, for just war theory. The idea that God uh, first to the people of Israel gave restrictions on how to wage wage war. And here's another one that's, a, that's an interesting restriction. Again, chapter 20. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Now think about that. That is a, a law given to Israel for the purpose of restraining the destructiveness of war. They are allowed to eat of the trees, but they're not to wage war against the trees. They're not to um, uh, uh, scorched earth policy the land and destroy everything around. Um, they're not to have that kind of an attitude that, well, we'll cut down all the all the fruit trees, and then we'll build siege works out of them and kill the and, and destroy the city. Or, hey, we might lose this battle, so let's kill all the fruit trees so that these people can't eat mm-hmm. when we when we have to leave. No, God says you will not do that. So there's there's limits being placed on on how to wage war. Uh, uh, there. I just find it very interesting that God asked that rhetorical questions. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Right. You're not besieging the trees. You're besieging your enemies. Yeah. And for yeah. this latter category too, where we're talking about in devoting an entire uh, civilization to the ban, I mean, the way that I think yeah. about that is, you know, now in kind of a new covenant context where we have this distinction mm-hmm. between the state qua state mm-hmm. and, the, and God's people as a as a as a multinational state, yeah, yeah, and and not well, not as a nation state in a new covenant (laughs) context, but but yeah, no, you're right, Mm -hmm. because in an old covenant context they were, and so here similarly, um, I what is ultimate, what is the land uh, typologically pointing to, right? We have the land and its function is where God is going Mm -hmm. to dwell with His people, a land flowing with milk and honey, ultimately pointing towards the culmination of that in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, So that so this this category of, of um, complete and utter uh, war waged unto complete and utter destruction. Yeah. In the new heavens and the new earth, that is what we are doing, that, pursuing against sin. Mm-hmm. That is what Christ has accomplished on our behalf against sin. Um, we, are, yeah. we are completely putting that to the ban such that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no rebellion, and it will be where God's people peaceably dwell with, uh, with God himself. Yeah. In the fullness of his glory. Yeah. Um, but but in but there are categories, nevertheless, in this fallen and broken world for uh, for waging war and putting parameters around that, so that so that um, at least insofar as sinful humanity is concerned, <laughs> it, we that there are there are restraints put uh, yeah. that we can't just go and do any old thing. For example, you know, I think in you know, uh, pagans might, you know, one, one 
pillar of pagan just war theory might be, you know, okay, well, we want to go to war in defense against violence, but also to restore honor, mm-hmm. right? Like shame, if someone, yeah. shame, if someone dishonors you, that's, that's a legitimate cause for war. And a Christian would say, no, right? The only legitimate cause That'd for going to war is, yeah, yeah it's, it's defense against violent aggression. The only just intent is to restore peace, and that is to friend and foe alike. That's true. Military force is a last resort, right? It's not yeah. the first thing we jump to, only after negotiations have failed. And yeah. engaging the decision to engage in just war has to be made by the highest governmental authority. It's not a private matter. Yeah. Um, and then there's rules that govern the conduct of war, similar to what we just saw in Deuteronomy 20. Has to be for limited ends. It has to be, you know, to you know, to repel aggression, to redress injustice. Has to be uh, limited by proportionality to the offense. Has to be no intentional and direct attack on non-combatants mm-hmm. so hence we have kind of the the separating out of of the men women and children women and, and children exactly yes. and and war should not be prolonged where there's no reasonable hope of success yeah. within these limits yeah so i mean I, I think those those are kind of some of the some of the pillars of of just war theory as they've come down to us in the heritage of of, of aquinas and of calvin um, and are tied to some of these different biblical texts that we've been seeing as far as you know, Christians waging war, we saw, you know, until we have Romans 12, where we touched on this earlier, where Romans 12 is is basically, if, if I can summarize, saying, you know, don't live personal, don't, don't harbor personal malice, yes. right? Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Mm. Associate with the lowly, lowly. Repay no one evil for evil. That's right. Uh, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if it's possible and it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Mm-hmm. Um when we talk about Romans 13 now, we, there is kind of a sphere sovereignty distinction where we're expanding into the, the locus of, of the state and the state holding the sword. Mm-hmm. And if we can envision for a moment that there are instances where where aggression can be a function of love, if we mm-hmm. – and, and we can even – we do even want to come to um, love for the victims and also love for, for the aggressors. Right, that the you know we, as we said earlier that the means and and goals of war are are limited, mm-hmm. and they are with with the aim of redressing injustice, and ultimately even you know, pr- and this is hard for a lot of us, right? But but praying for the aggressor, praying yes. for the evildoer, that they would yeah. turn from their way, that they would repent, and that they would concede that that. They're they're standing against God and and doing and and promoting injustice. I don't yeah. mean in insofar as they stand in a nation, any particular nation means standing against no, God. No, no, like no, you no. stand against America, you stand against God. That's no. not the point at all. The point is where where injustice is perpetrated, then you are standing against a holy God. Mm-hmm. And 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 for those who for those who find themselves on the biblically right side of a moral conflict, granted all of the you know confusion and that that inevitably comes up where you know you have even in a large-scale good versus evil war like world war ii and you still have examples where you know the allied forces you know uh did Uh, carpet bombing fire bombing carpet bombing fire bombing cities but like when certain instances where where soldiers you know japanese soldiers would would Mm -hmm. give up and wave a white flag and would just be mowed down i mean things like that do happen and that is a, that is not justifiable from a just war Christian perspective. 
So don't hear me to be saying um, that there's ever a side where, you know, the hands are totally clean. It's no. very difficult. It's, to, it's, it's a lot of people. Involved. It's a lot of people involved. Exactly. But that being said, at the end of the day, when we are talking large scale purposes of war and and the 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 manners in which the manner in which the war is executed and the purpose for which it's executed and, and what it's over. Right. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, serving, loving our are, you know, in the, in the case of World War II, Jewish neighbors, mm -hmm. and not just Jewish neighbors, Pol Polish, na Polish neighbors, French, French, exactly, <laughs> like all serving and loving our neighbors. Um, that you can say, I do think w that there is some, uh, there is a biblical right and a biblical wrong in some of those cases. It doesn't mean that everyone's hands are clean, mm -hmm. right? But it does mean that when the purpose of the war is boiled down to love we can put these kinds of things into biblical categories and say look there is a right here and there is a wrong here yeah. and yeah uh, I, I want want to read something because you mentioned um, some of those categories and as a, as a military person myself I've been serving for about 12 years I mean I'm always struck by the by the Christian foundation of our laws of war that that the West has inherited yeah. and that we still implement now we might not um, give credit where credit is due. We don't give credit to like Augustine when he talked about justified war warfare in, yeah, in his books, um, Aquinas or, or Calvin or or the reformers or anything like that. So we don't give credit where credit is due, sadly, but we still utilize the same principles. So I'm going to read for you uh, the law of armed conflict that 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 we have in the military, and and Dylan mentioned a couple of these military necessity. You know, um, you target those things that are legitimate military objectives, okay? Or and then the concept of humanity, um, avoid inflicting unnecessary suffering, and avoid um, unnecessary destruction of property just for the sake of wrecking havoc, right? Or proportionality, meaning we don't use any greater force than necessary to obtain the goal. We don't we don't nuke uh, the guy if it's a limited uh, objective that we're trying. To do and then and then chivalry um to um to 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 uh, and here's actually what the, the word is there uh, waging war in accordance with formalities and courtesies so for example um we can use camouflage a lawful ruse if you will camouflage but you can't wave the white flag um as a form of deception like I'm, i am going to surrender and then when they come up to meet you you shoot them right you you like that would be an abuse of that that or 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 pretending that you're the Red Cross, yep. and I'm going to go help people, but I really am just a, a, I'm going to go bomb people. So that would be an an, un, an unlawful or an immoral uh, use of deception, yes. really. And so these are all laws that we that we go by um, uh, as we wage war, and 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 they they they, they date back, uh, you know, to, to the time of Christ and. And in some ways, I would say even to the Old Testament. Um, but as far as Western society, they were only really codified uh, around the time of the Civil War and maybe a few decades afterwards. I have another document here. It's from the, the, Hague, the Hague Conventions. Uh, there were two of them, 1899 and 1907. And the United States was one of the signers of this convention. But it, it goes through like how to take care of prisoners. Um, for example... Um, they must be humanely treated. They, their, their, their personal property is not to be stolen from them. 
um, a prisoner can't be forced to uh, wage war against their own nation. So you can't make them, if you capture them, you can't put a weapon in their hand and say, go fight against your own people. I mean, um, they can't be... They can't be uh, uh, abused uh, physically, so you can't use you can't use them for medical experimentation. Hmm. Um, I it would be, let's say that there is a, a an evil nation that I mean, if you think about it, uh, it would this might actually be uh, a useful technique if you wanted to. But let's say that I capture a whole bunch of prisoners. Why can't I harvest their organs and use them for my own soldiers? Why can't I take their blood and use their blood for my own soldiers? Yeah, those prisoners will die. I, that's less people I have to guard, less f- mouths I have to feed, and then I get organs and I get blood for my own soldiers to use, and it's and we we can't even fathom doing that. Yeah. But but pra- pragmatically, it seems like a win-win, right? To to do that, but that is completely against the Western Western culture, and of course against biblical principles. You're not supposed to do that, and and in these conventions, it talks about. Um, honoring their their personal property, giving them wages, don't making them have excessive labor, and you can put them to labor, but you can't make them do things that are directly involved in warfare, right? And like like building tanks, building uh, uh, guns, and things like that. And yeah, you're not going to harvest their organs and take their blood. Like that would be like horrible. <laughs> I mean, these are just things that like we take for granted. We take for granted, right? Yeah. Like at the end of the day, there's how we think of even like what was it? The LOAC that you just read? Law of Armed Conflict. Law of armed LOAC. Conflict. Yeah. But there's Low also act. like the Geneva Conventions. Like yep, all of part. these different things are are rooted in a Christian heritage that we often just take for granted. You know, why don't we do some of these things that are vicious but yeah. pragmatically useful? Yeah. Um, and that's because ultimately, like, we're not after pragmatism. We're right? not. There no. is a higher standard of how mm-hmm. war is to be conducted, um, and we just don't want to lose sight of that. Yeah. I mean, well, so so we talked about some of these as, like, things we want to avoid, right? What are some other things that, you know, as Christians are thinking through just war theory, um, what are some things that are important for us to be mindful of, pitfall, pitfalls to avoid? Yeah. Um, well, you, you mentioned uh, uh, the categories of uh, of the goal, the objective. So the military uses the phrase ends, ways, and means. And and how I use the analogy is like driving a car, right? I have a destination I want to get to. That would be the end. That's the goal, mm-hmm. okay? I have the, the, the way. So the route that I take, the roads that I take is the way I get to that goal. And then the means is the tool that I use. So do I use a bicycle or do I use a car or a bus? So that's the, the means, the ways, and the ends. And all three of those things need to be as you said, just, right? So the goal, what's the goal? Are we, are we, are we just trying to serve our honor? Are we trying to end uh, or bring justice? What's the, uh, what's the way? How do we go about waging war? Do we, do we, do we kill all of the, um, the civilians? Do we kill the women and children? Just, you know, just, you know, hopefully that'll get us what we want. Okay, no. Um, and what's the means? What do we use? Do we use biological weapons? Do we use chemical weapons? Do we use glass? You know, and actually, those are all prohibited in these in these rules of armed conflict. I mean, it's true we did use chemical weapons in World War One, but after the fact, we realized how horrible that was, and we said that's not right, that's wrong. And find it very interesting that even in World War Two, when the Nazis were losing, they could have used chemical weapons and they didn't. It's very interesting that while Hitler was gassing the Jews, he was gassing uh, all these people. He refused to use chemical weapons in the field of combat against 
either Soviet or American or British troops. Now, why is that? Now, why can he be so inconsistent like that? I, I do think that part of it is God is restraining evil, but Hitler himself had known and experienced chemical warfare in World War I. He himself had been gassed, and I think that that's part, maybe one of the reasons why he refused to go that route. So, um, so those are all the, the things that we need to think about as Christians when we, when we think about this warfare. I mean, is the war being, being fought in the proper way, uh, using the proper tools, and for the proper goals? And um, in general, at least for those of us living in the United States, uh, I would say that's, that's generally true. Amer- America has generally been on the leading edge of trying to restrain itself in warfare. Um, and some of the pitfalls, I would say, are, are this, that, okay, that, that one mistake, that one error means the whole thing is off, right? So you kind of mentioned it, you know, it's, the government needs to be trying to wage the war properly. Now, some of the troops, though, they're going to make some big mistakes. Yeah. They, they, they might abuse prisoners. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, there's, there's that, that issue too. Now, the question is, when we see a deviations from, from this, uh, improper things being done, um, is the government responding properly, like disciplining yeah. those soldiers? Yeah. For, 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 is the government covering it up or is the government encouraging it? And that, you know, will kind of help us to understand, like, is this war a just war or not like like uh, is it being waged rightly is the government trying to do it well or are they encouraging uh, wickedness in their behavior so we just want to be careful though that one mistake doesn't mean that the whole war is no longer just yeah and that needs to be stopped i mean that, that's a really good point so like yeah. and this is important the the abuse of principle does not lead to the abolition of principle that's right yes. i mean that's just a hugely important like we don't say you know Sometimes when people give charity, there mm-hmm. could be mixed motives in giving the charity. Yeah. Therefore, don't give the charity. Or sometimes elders abuse their power, so there shouldn't be elders. So there shouldn't be elders, exactly. So you cannot ju- you cannot judge from the abuse of principle to the abolition of principle. And to your point, Eric, it's the same yeah. thing when applied to just war. You don't go from the abuse of these tenets of just war to the, say, therefore, you know, just war is just a farce. Mm-hmm. You know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, as, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree That's with that. That's a good point. Um, another pitfall might be... The, the the more the pragmatic one that we need to be careful of that that if we're losing that these rules should go out the window mm. like like in the name of victory mm. we should abandon these rules like we can't you know we're gonna we're, we're done taking care of prisoners the bad guys or the or the enemy he's using chemical weapons you know he's doing all these horrible things so now we get to as well and that's that's not the case right you're held to the standard regardless of what the opponent does yep Right, so that's a hard thing, though, and it's very easy for uh, for for people who are engaged in warfare to want to take the gloves off when the enemy takes the gloves off. But yeah, that's we can't do that. We can't. We yeah, can't it's, it's one of those things where, like, and and you know, I, I, I think you know, Eric and I sit here saying this, talking about this from in an American context. Um, yeah. But I, I would hope that you know, a Christian living anywhere where they are, you know, a citizen, as it were, of, of, of both nations, right? The, their heavenly city and the city in which they dwell here on earth. You're a citizen of both places. And insofar as you are a citizen, like I'm a citizen of heaven, yeah. first and foremost, but I'm right. a citizen of America as well. And so when I look at this and I think about these, these things, you know, America had better be clean and be seen to be clean. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to just like to you know, do the right thing and have these accords. It is very important on the world stage and in, in the political arena 
to be seen to be clean. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, you cannot stress that enough, mm-hmm. not least of which in term, you know, in, in many of these instances where, uh, you know, where, when I think in, in, in recent memory, there was, we, we had bombed Afghanistan and, mm-hmm. and it became a staple of the Muslim press. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether or not it was, you know, justified is, is not quite the point here. I guess the point here being, you know, it just, we had better be very, very, careful about how we go and and execute certain missions and certain steps that we take because that becomes you know just fuel to the fire of a of of press in other parts of the world that can instigate um you know a lot of a lot of blowback and that doesn't mean we don't take steps it does mean that you know for from where i say i am tremendously grateful for certain key advances in technology and warfare technology that allow for much more precision um, in mm-hmm. in our in our coordination of attacks. Um, that has just been, you know, yeah. there's there's been no talk of firebombing yes. places the same way that we might have in World War II. And for that, I'm very yeah. grateful. Right? We can we can, despite the widely publicized instances of some of the you know quote unquote I guess smart bombs or some of the technology that's pinpointing yeah. a particular location, despite the you know widely publicized instances of some of those going astray. You don't hear about the vast, vast, vast majority of oh, those yeah. that hit precisely on target. Yeah. Um, and and that is something for which, you know, if, you know, that is something to, to give thanks to God for insofar as it, it allows us to be much more moderate, focused, mm-hmm. and and to alleviate this and, and to, to much, much, much decrease the risk of um, any kind of ill befalling on civilians yeah. or you know those who are not themselves directly participating in the warfare yeah um, like like for myself i mean i don't want to go into this too much necessarily but uh you know i've been uh, in, engaged in my own job in, in combat or against uh against radical terrorism uh for over six years now mm-hmm. and uh in all my time i have never uh, been part of an instance where um you know i felt I felt like I was disobeying the Lord, or that I was uh, uh, committing uh, uh, war crimes, or anything like that. Like we take very careful steps to make sure that we are not hitting the wrong target, yeah. and that the person that we are hitting, that we're striking, is is genuinely uh, uh, an enemy who is armed and who's trying to kill us, trying right. to kill uh, Americans, tr- wa- actively waging war. And it's difficult because, you know, the enemy does not play by these rules. For instance, in in, in these ancient, uh, ancient, a couple hundred years old Geneva Conventions, Hague Conventions, one of the rules for belligerence is you are supposed to wear identifiable yeah. um, uniforms. Yeah. Right. No like, red cross outfits. No red cross saying. outfits. Yep. You're not to be disguised uh, as a civilian. Okay. You are to have a recognizable flag, and and that's one of the reasons why flags were you know were used. But the guys that we are, the Islamic extremists that we're fighting, they do not follow those rules. They will hide amongst the populace, the women and the children. Yeah. They'll dress just like it, and it makes it particularly difficult. But we, it's not like we don't care anymore. I think there's. Well, we don't a, try. We still try. Yeah, I think there's a uh, in the hadith. There's a saying attributed to uh, Muhammad uh, where he says, you know, war is deceit. So you, you don't have a lot of the same rules about um, forthrightness yeah. uh, in in warfare in Islam mm-hmm. that that you might have in uh, in at least in the Western heritage. Impact, you know, influenced by by Christianity and just war theory. Yeah. Um, 
there, it's really interesting. It might be worth, you know, this is not the episode for it. I know yeah. we're, we're running out of time here, but um, just to kind of tease out some of the, like, there are some pretty huge civilizational worldview differences between how Islam conceives of not only warfare, but the state, mm. right? And, and how um, and how that gets teased out in warfare over against um, how, how America and many countries in the West are pivoted um, on the, you know, kind of riding the coattails, even if mm. these are not Christian nations in that sense, nevertheless, riding the coattails of certain, um, you know, assumptions and, and worldviews that are rooted in, in, in Christianity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, like, there's no, there's no difference in, in Islam between what we would call church and state. Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah. And, and, and like, like how, how war is perceived and how it's executed is a function of, of it, it, it has very religious garb intentionally so yeah um and so it does tie back to you know how did how did muhammad execute warfare yeah. um and and that being looked at as as a type that can then inform uh yeah. practice of warfare today so i mean that that's a conversation for another another episode but it's just it's interesting to me kind of seeing some of those differences and how the root of them yeah, absolutely, brother. And one last thing I, I want to mention about, I mean, today, in this day, in our day and age, at least in, in the United States, the big thing is is drones, right? That's that's the thing that people seem to have uh, a lot of problems with and just protesting. But you know what's interesting is that it's always been that way throughout history. The, 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 whatever the newest technology is, the invention of the airplane, um, you know, like I said, the, the earliest uh, people who are advocating air, air, air power, using airplanes, uh, they advocated bombing cities. They thought that if you could, uh, you could bypass all the enemy's defenses, you could fly right over him, and if you bomb all his cities, he'll surrender. And that was the mentality. Now, they had never done it in practice, but that was the theory that this new tool will allow us to end wars quicker with, with the least um, risk to our own troops, right? That was mm -hmm. the idea. Similar thing with the nuclear weapons, right? And those were protested as well back in the day. We don't protest nuclear weapons right now. But we still have them. But the new thing, the protests are remote aircraft, um, quote unquote drones, right? But again, as Christians, we need to think carefully before we, before we either condemn, like, like haphazardly condemn those who are protesting, or or whether we join them in their protest. We need to think very carefully: is the tool um, an unlawful means? Is it an immoral means of waging warfare? Is it being you know? Is it being used improperly? How is it being used? Um, and and so we need to think about about those things. How would we use this tool, in 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 a, in a, in a God honoring and justified manner if we were to to have it right? So these are all things I think Christians need to need to think about. Yeah, I mean, so the question there being, you know, does the new technology facilitate warfare such that it, the war as it's executed, mm -hmm. is more in line or less in minimizes line with just war civilian casualties. Right. Minim does, does it minimize civilian casualties? Does it minimize collateral damage of other buildings? Right. You know things like that. Can it be more precise? Right. You know yep. things like that's that. That's huge. And that's, that's huge. Is it is it a stu good stewardship of resources? Mm -hmm. Right. And 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 again, even from a pragmatic perspective, we don't want to use bombs and missiles on non-military targets because non those things are yeah. expensive. Yeah. I mean that's I mean that's from a pragmatic perspective. Morally, certainly and you morally, don't want to do just, that. You, it's you just, just wrong. You just do not attack non-combatants. You just don't do it. But I think yeah. in the end, God's law has wisdom behind it because if you do start doing those things, not only do you harden the enemy against you, like yeah. he's going to want revenge against you as well. But you're wasting your resources, mm. and in a fruitless effort that's not going to that's not going to end the, 
end things well. Yeah, and, 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 and at the end of the day, we just don't do it, right? Yeah, yeah, just, don't do it. That's just not something. <laughs> easy that, enough. Just easy don't enough. Do it. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, listen, as as we're wrapping up here, I uh, wanted to give uh, turn to the proverb of the day. Proverb of the day. Proverb of the day, exactly. So, um, so for today's proverb, um, we're going to be looking at proverb cha- uh, Proverbs chapter twenty four, mm-hmm. and we'll be looking at verses plural five and oh, six. Two of them. Two of them. I know. <laughs> Getting a jump on it this morning. Uh, Proverbs twenty four verses five and six. Verse five: A wise man is full of strength. And a man of knowledge enhances his might, for by wise guidance you can wage your war, hmm. and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Hmm. Go. Very, yeah, very <laughs> applicable proverb for certain. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. So, there's um, there's a, there's a there's a repetition here, and this is common in a lot of a lot of poetry poetry, including including proverbs. So you can kind of see like, okay. What does the what does it mean to have a wise man is full of strength? Okay, so there's that, and then and then it's like a repetition. And a man of knowledge enhances his might. So knowledge and wisdom go together, and then this they're attached to full of strength and enhancing of might. Um, and so you know, okay, well that's that's interesting there. Okay, wisdom, knowledge, and that's where strength lies, and and, and might and power. Uh, really, it's not so much um, uh, physical, but uh, but the use of knowledge. Wisdom being the the, the 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 application of knowledge, and then and then it goes into verse six there, four. So it's kind of like this is the purpose behind it. This is the intent. By wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. And I think the proverb there, um, is just clearly pointing out that uh, that to, you know if you if you're going to do anything and in this particular context wage war, uh, it needs to be with wisdom. Uh, it's only by wise guidance that you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Now, does this does this proverb mean that in every single instance, if you have lots of counselors, you're guaranteed to win a war? Well, no. It's proverbs or proverb. You know, they're they're, they're generally proverbs. true. They're proverbs, they're right? Generally true. So, in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Now, now, why is that the case? Well, abundance of counselors, and this could be applicable in any area of life. Uh, um, the more people uh, that you're tapping into, that you're getting their perspective, you're getting their uh, their own knowledge and their own wisdom, and you're relying upon them, uh, I think that paves the way and it really does help to, to, to bring about success, whether that's in the business place or or anywhere else, and particularly in government, in, in warfare. Um, if one person thinks that that he alone is going to wage war and, and achieve victory and not listen to any of 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 counselors, generals, subordinates, whatever, I think that person's a fool, hmm. uh, and that person is is on the path to 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 defeat. Clearly, um, so even though there's no guarantee of victory, uh, to to wage warfare uh, would require, and you'd want an abundance of counselors. You want that wisdom. You want those that resource uh, that you can tap into, uh, experience that you can. That you can look at. I mean, and we do that. That very concept. Um, just to give me. Uh, I want to give one application practically. Um, the idea of of a general staff, or or a high command, right? So so we have you know chief of staff of the Air Force. We have chief of staff of the Army. We have all these chiefs, all these staff members, and the President of the United States has all of these individuals from the Marines, Navy, Army, Air Force, that that he can. He can tap into all those individuals and make a wise decision because not one person can have 
exhaustive knowledge of every aspect of warfare. I mean, the Army guy is not going to fully understand all that the Air Force does. I mean, they'll have a general feel for things, but, but it's important that presidents and leaders utilize their subordinates in making a wise decision so they don't just fall into uh, a, a bad situation and ultimately to, to defeat there. So that's, that's just you know, how I would understand that problem. No, Maybe good. apply it there. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you, brother, for unpacking that well for us. Uh, this has been Two Guys in a Bible. Feel free to reach out to us at twoguysinabible.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us there. And I believe now we have the Two Guys yeah, in the Bible. Yeah, it's the number two. It's the number two That's now. Right. Everything's the number two Praise now. God, everything's the number two. We, praise God for consistency. That's it's wonderful. Right. <laughs> so we have the—but P.S., if you do still email the letter to—excuse the, me, the word to, uh, then it'll get to us just we the own same. Both. We own both. We have both, exactly. Yeah. So two guys in a Bible dot podcast at gmail.com. Also on Twitter, at two, the number two, guys in a Bible. Facebook.com forward slash the number two, two guys in a Bible. And you can also find us at the number two, two guys in a Bible.org. This has been Two Guys in a Bible. Thank you, Absolutely. everyone, for listening in. And Eric, thank you for your time this morning, brother. It's been a privilege. Uh, and uh, God bless. Yeah, God bless. Thank you.